Hello, everybody. It's Kara Kandel here with my favorite co-host, Gerard Robinson, and we are coming at you. It is February 1st. So, Gerard, it has been National School Choice Week. It is now National Catholic Schools Week. It is also the start of Black History Month. So many weeks, a, a great month ahead of us, and I think that the learning curve, we try and do a good job of talking about Black history on this show, but excited to kick off this month. Tomorrow is Groundhog Day. I'm not quite as excited about that. It sort of <laughs> snuck up on us. We'll see what the guy says, but, but coming off of a blizzard, I guess maybe I should be excited about what the groundhog has in store. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. It's sunny, no snow on the ground, at least new snow. So I'm feeling good and really feeling excited about the article that I have for this week, because in fact, it ties in your former university, University of Chicago, and University of Chicago also has a long history in producing Black PhDs who went on to do great things. So let's go. You should talk about it right now. Just like dig in. I always love hearing anything about University of Chicago. Some days I just dream about going back, although they have snow too, not blizzards, but dig in. Tell us, what are you thinking about? What is your article about this week? So we know you have Chicago roots, and particularly your mom. So there's a guy named Pano Canellis who grew up in Chicago. He worked at his family's Greek diner. And the goal was for him to take over the diner once he became an adult. So while he worked there, he would spend time after hours or in the back reading books. And so he definitely became a book guy. And he told his parents, you know what? I want to go to college. And so he became the first in his family to enroll in college, initially at Northwestern University. And he did so because he said it's the only campus he had visited. Well, of course, his love for books led him to do a PhD, social philosophy and literature at the University of Chicago. In fact, it was political philosophy. And that's no joke. Yeah, that's no joke. Oh, yeah. They are serious at that place. And so he took that and moved to the West Coast and became a professor at Stanford University, University of San Diego, and then found himself moving toward the East. Well, Recently, he was a president of St. John's College, which I'm a big fan of, the great book school. And we actually have a scholar associated with us at the Institute for Advanced Learning here at the University of Virginia, who's got an affiliation there. Well, in the season of trying to think entrepreneurial about K-12, we often forget that there's also an entrepreneurial movement in higher ed. And so he decided to leave his job as president of St. John's University, where he had done a great job of recruiting students. But get this, and I say this is someone who had a college-aged daughter and will have two more in the future. While he was the president, he actually decreased tuition from 52000 to thirty five thousand dollars in twenty eighteen. That's almost wait, 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 like say, heresy. Say that again. Say that again. From fifty thousand yeah. to one. He helped cut St. John's annual tuition from fifty two thousand to thirty five thousand in twenty eighteen. I will take that. And this is that. at a time there was a hundred and fifty percent rise in private school tuition across the board and in public education, we've seen even higher. So, I mean, this is really ideal. So he being at a great book school, a Shakespearean scholar, pretty big in ideas. He said, you know what? I think we need to start a new school. And so he is the new president 
of a school called the University of Austin, located in Texas. It has no accreditation. It has no students, although more than 4,000 students have shown interest. He has no full-time faculty as of yet, although 1,000 faculty from across the country have reached out to him and said we're interested in this idea. And so he said, listen, there are three things that we need to think about. A school focused on liberal arts where you can actually decrease tuition. Number two, he says we need to do a better job of investing in faculty, but not over investing and spending tons of time in adjunct faculty. Now, I have worked as an adjunct faculty member. Mm -hmm. I know the importance we play in the academy. But what he's saying is we have too many adjunct faculty members doing the bulk of the work when, in fact, we should have full time people who wake up and go to sleep every morning doing this work. He's going to push for that. And third, he said, we are at a point in American history where speaking freely, let's say it can cost you a lot in terms of being gaslighted and other things. So he connected with an entrepreneur and a few other people and the school at least is starting to move forward. He put out a tweet about the idea a hailstorm of criticism fell upon him because he questioned the fact that maybe we don't need as many administrators at universities as we do. <laughs> now, you and I both know, as you laugh, you and I both know that in the K-12 sector, over the last 25 years, there's been tremendous growth in administration. People think it's more principals, but in fact, it's actually a staffing oh, surge, which our friend yeah. Ben Scafferty at uh, Kennesaw State in Georgia has written a wonderful paper about, in fact, he think he's updated it recently. So there's always growth in bureaucracy. The question is, what's the return on investment in terms of student learning, student efficacy, investments in faculty. So I took a look at the webpage and come to find out Barry Weiss, who we had on here recently, yeah. is one of the trustees. And when you look at the board of visitors, we have people like Arthur Brooks, who is former president of uh, the American Enterprise Institute, person who hired me, where I am still a fellow at AEI. We have Ayan Ali, who we've had on the show. She's also there. Glenn Lowry, Brown University. In fact, I'm going yeah. to see Professor Lowry later this week in person. And even Nadine Strawson, who's a professor of law, but get this, former president of the ACLU. So you got AEI, ACLU, and people in the middle having this conversation. So there are two big takeaways for me. Number one, K-12 knows really well if there's a demand, there will be a supply. I can't tell you that every supply is quality because it's not but the supply demand market is there. Higher education is doing it right now. Number two, we are at a point in American higher education where students and faculty are fearful of speaking freely on a campus that's supposed to be open for ideas. And at the point that we're having conversations with people across the Pacific and Atlantic oceans about democracy, about free markets, we here have to have a free marketplace of ideas. And that's where higher ed is moving. So I applaud his effort. Uh, of course, he having a connection with the University of Chicago reminded me that in 2014, the president of the University of Chicago and the provost put out the Chicago statement. And they were pretty clear of what they thought was a marketplace of ideas. It, of course, received also another hailstorm of criticism, but also a hailstorm of praise. And so I think this is a great article. It's from the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to follow this experiment with great interest. What do you think? Uh, 
I mean, I think that you had me at Greek diner, first of all, because I'm hungry and you're taking me back to Chicago <laughs> where the food is just so good all the time, especially at any Greek diner. But I digress. I mean, this is just I love this because, number one, entrepreneurialism in higher education. Just saying my darling husband is always asking me when I'm going to go back to teaching in higher ed so that at some point we might get tuition remission for our kids. But I want to work for that guy's university, not the ones that I have worked for in the past. And let's take this point, though, Gerard, about the marketplace of ideas. And I have to say, now, some of our listeners might be suspicious that I lean a little further to the left than you do, Gerard, politically. But let's not make the assumption. I mean, I could not agree more. I think that when we look around, I experienced this as a professor in the School of Education. I experienced this in my current just day-to-day life. I think I really agree with you that it's so dangerous that we're at a place and it's just rampant in higher education, trickling down to all aspects of society. Certainly, you know, there are things that are appropriate in K-12 to and things that are not, but what are we teaching kids? In higher education, the idea that there are certain things you can't say, certain opinions that you should not be able to express, I think it's really, really scary. So I love this board of diverse thinkers. I love what this place stands for. I'm very proud of my alma mater, the University of Chicago for the statement it made in this vein, despite criticism. And I think that this is going to challenge what has become the status quo in some really, really interesting ways. I also love that it's in Austin because, you know, cool city, great food, great music, and nice and warm. So thank you so much for that story, Jared. I hope you do keep an eye on it. And I don't know, maybe you and I, I they won't hire many adjuncts, but maybe they'll hire us for a class here or there. We can call some of the wonderful people that have been on the show to plead our case. So I have a a different story this week, but I don't know that, I know our listeners know that you've been a teacher. I too was a teacher back in the day, a teacher of um, English language learners and of English literature just a couple days ago when I was in my 20s. And like so many, I decided to leave the profession to pursue different career. But this article today from the Wall Street Journal is entitled, Teachers Are Quitting and Companies Are Hot to Hire Them. And I mean, the title really says it all. And we know that teachers, you know, we can talk about teacher shortages, but what has become, what are we calling it? The great resignation, right? Is affecting all sectors, but certainly teaching, just given not only the job market, but what teachers have been through in the past year. And this article talks about how as more and more teachers decide they just can't take it anymore. At one point, it paints a picture of a woman who really loved her teaching career, but was so horrified by the pandemic and all the stress that it caused that she was like arriving an hour before school to sort of like cry in her car. She couldn't get out of the car. Like that's when you know that the job isn't working for you, right? But it talks about in this article how so many of these teachers are finding second homes in places that really value the skills that they bring to the table, whether that's they know how to train people, right? Teachers know how to teach. And so companies are hiring them to be trainers. Companies are hiring them for creative creative endeavors. Companies are hiring them to write and teachers are finding homes that they might not have known that they had before. And it's not all about 
higher pay because yes, many of them are getting higher pay, but it's also about more flexibility. It's about having more autonomy. As we know, we're in a place where, and I won't pin this on state standards like a lot of people will, Gerard, because I believe that you can still have a lot of autonomy to teach while still teaching to a high state standard. But a lot of school districts are prescribing a teacher's every movement at the local level. And people feel that that sort of sucks the soul out of this thing that they love. So they're finding another home. And what I was thinking when reading this, Gerard, is that certainly as long as I've been in education policy, and I know you've been in a lot longer, <laughs> Fred, so maybe you can remember a time, but we've been talking about what's going to happen to drive, whether you think about it as the market or just drive schools to treat teachers differently, to attract and retain teachers using different mechanisms. This might be it, because if teachers are making a mass exodus, especially good experienced teachers, and they're going places where they're making a lot more money, schools, districts, states might have to get really creative around what are the things that they offer teachers beyond money, money being important, but what are the things that they offer teachers to make them feel fulfilled as some of these other jobs appear to be doing. So I think this is going to be something that will have a long arc. I think we're going to be talking about this for years to come. And I really hope that this exodus of wonderful people from the profession, as scary as it is to some extent, especially when we see our experienced, highly capable teachers leaving the classroom and we lose those mentors for our younger teachers. But I hope that this might drive us to really get more creative about how we entice people to teach in our schools and how we make teaching a really high profile profession that people want to be in. So we have two great stories of the week this week, Gerard, but as a former teacher and watching what's happening, what are your thoughts on this article? So as you know, I have another podcast. It's not as regular as the one that you and I do. It's called In Character, and you can find it at our culturefeed.org webpage. And I've interviewed over 130 teachers and principals and social entrepreneurs. And a number of them, in fact, left the classroom even before the pandemic to pursue options in the nonprofit sector for both teaching and learning opportunities, but also the for-profit sector. Some of them created separate LLCs or they're working for companies. But the pandemic, again, has opened up opportunities, partly driven by frustration. Yeah, I'm with you. If someone's crying before they want to get out, yeah, it's time to go. And in the private sector, they often see ways of using talent in ways that maybe even the educator had not him or herself. So I'm glad to hear the story. I know of teachers who are doing it. Even 20 years ago, friends of mine whose moms or dads were teachers often worked in the summer for a company as a consultant. Yes, to supplement salary, but also it gave them an opportunity to work with adults and to work with some cutting edge thinking on teacher science, learning science that they would not have gotten either at a school of education or they would have to re-enroll into a school to get that. But working in the private sector gave them a chance to look at it from a public-private standpoint. So I'm glad to see this happening. Sad to see teachers leaving in part because of the conditions that the pandemic has put them in, our politicians, even some of the things some of our folks on our mm -hmm. side of the fence for school reform have done. But I'm glad that there's a pathway for people moving forward. Yeah. And who knows, maybe this new university in Austin will train some Teachers, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll be watching it. Okay, Gerard. As hey, you always, know what? We've got a great. I just guest. thought about something, yeah. Kara, and maybe we can get the uh, Pioneer Institute to think about tuition remission for our kids. Just food for thought. 
Jim Sturgis, if you're listening, let's start that conversation. I've got three. <laughs> I've got two. We're, we're working on Yeah, you've only got two more to get through. I'm staring down the, oh my goodness gracious. So yes, we'll take that conversation up at a later date. Maybe we need to talk to the board too, Gerard. We'll talk about it. All right. We've got another great guest, as we always do here on The Learning Curve. And this week, we are going to be talking to Dr. Jennifer Frey. She is at the University of South Carolina, and she's also a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. So listeners, we're going to take a really short break, some curated music for you, and we will be back. Learning Curve listeners, we're very happy to have with us today Dr. Jennifer Frey. She is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at University of South Carolina and Fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University of America. Prior to joining the Philosophy faculty at USC, she was a Collegiate Assistant Professor of Humanities at the University of Chicago, where she was a member of the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts and affiliated faculty in the Philosophy Department. She earned her PhD in Philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh and her BA in philosophy and medieval studies with a classics minor at, wait for it, Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, my alma mater as well. She has published widely on action, virtue, practical reason, and meta-ethics, and has recently co-edited an interdisciplinary volume, Self-Transcendence and Virtue, Perspectives from Philosophy, Theology, and Psychology. Professor Frey's writing has also been featured in Breaking Ground, First Things, Fair Forward, Image, Law and Liberty, The Point, and USA today. She is the host of a popular philosophy, literature, and theology podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, and she lives in Columbia, South Carolina with her husband, six children, and six chickens. Is that a chicken for each child? I'm curious to know. Dr. Frey, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It is a chicken for each child, but it turns out they just sell them, <laughs> like <in laughs> a half dozen or a dozen, so it accidentally works out that way. But yeah, I mean, we refuse to get our kids an indoor pet, so like the chickens were a compromise. Also, they lay eggs, so it's really fun. Yeah, so they're very useful. I have to say, I held out on the indoor pet for many, many years, and now that we have one, it is a different life. It's still a good life, but it's a little bit more work, <laughs> especially here in New England with a blizzard impending. I'm wondering exactly who's going to walk the dog tomorrow because it's not going to be me. <laughs> exactly. Enough about pets. We are here to talk to you during National Catholic Schools Week. And as I said, you're a mother of six. You are an educator. I myself have published books on Catholic education, specifically here in Massachusetts, very interested in the topic. Could you tell our listeners, and maybe with a specific voice to those who aren't Catholic and who don't know much about Catholic education, why Catholic education is so vitally important in our communities, even for folks who aren't Catholic? Yeah, so I think the thing that we tend to forget in contemporary discourse is that education is really about formation. Like a true education isn't just about conveying facts and knowledge and skills, although, of course, it does involve conveying facts and knowledge and skills, but it's about forming young people into a certain kind of person. And so we're really talking about the cultivation and shaping of young minds and hearts and feelings and perceptual capacities and imagination 
right? And we have to do that in accordance with some vision of what a well-educated person is like, right? When we think about education and formation, we always have to have in mind what we think an ideal graduate is like from whatever institution of education we're talking about. And I think that, you know, Catholic education and Catholic schools has a really unique vision of the human person that is based in an understanding of what is true and good and beautiful. And I think that's very important. It's important for Catholics, of course. Catholic education is really vital because when it's done well, it doesn't leave any aspect of that personal formation untouched. So within the context of specifically Catholic education, right, we can talk about the virtues in their fullness. We don't have to leave out faith as the perfection of the intellect or charity and hope as the perfection of the will. And we can talk about those virtues as sort of crowning or perfecting the more kind of natural or cardinal virtues, right, of justice and practical wisdom and temperance and courage and things like this. And we can also teach our kids to be open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and to recognize things like our dependence on God's grace. And I think that outside the Catholic schools, you miss out on these aspects of personal formation. And they're really like at the heart of human life. We're talking about the proper formation of conscience as well. And also, of course, things like biblical literacy and understanding how the story of Christ brings a kind of ultimate meaning and purpose to life for non-Catholics. So all my kids are in Catholic school and only about half of their classmates are Catholic. And one reason for that is just, well, one reason, I think, frankly, is just the pandemic. <laughs> so yeah. there are a lot of kids in the Catholic schools just because, like, it's a school that's open. But I also think that Catholics are, so I live in the deep south, and Catholics here in South Carolina are a minority, right? And so the Catholic schools are always going to have lots of non-Catholics in them for a variety of reasons. And I think this is good. Because I think that we can remind parents that Catholic, Catholicity really refers to the universality, <laughs> this vision that we have, that it really is grounded in human nature. And again, talking about how we're cultivating that human nature in specific ways so that like it is fully reaching its potential as we understand it in the Catholic tradition. As for its impact on the community, I mean, I think it just speaks for itself. So in the Catholic schools, you don't just have like your academic grades, like you have your service. <laughs> you have grades that involve your service to the community. So even in the elementary schools, the Catholic students explicitly as part of their education have to involve themselves in being in really in contributing to the common good. And they can do that in a variety of ways. They can be creative about it, but that's as part of their evaluation, as part of their education. And also any time that we're talking about character formation, forming young people to be good human beings and citizens and to contribute to the common good, that is always to the benefit of the broader community beyond school. And even when we talk about a good education, we're talking about the foundation of something like a strong democracy. 
I think that sometimes we forget the connection between education and a flourishing democracy and the idea that nearly all the founding fathers held, which is that your republic, your democracy is only going to be as good as its citizens. Like you have to keep this going. And so I think that the Catholic, yeah, I think Catholic schools have a very strong case to make for themselves that they are engaged in this larger civic project of laying the foundations of a good and healthy and strong democracy as well. Yeah, they certainly do. And of course, the pandemic has helped Catholic schools that have seen a decline in enrollment in recent decades. But I think that even long before that, they were Catholic schools, to your point, were certainly helping many members of the community who might not consider themselves Catholic. I want to push you on one point. So you mentioned the Catholic commitment and the ability for schools and teachers to talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful in the context of Catholic education and in Catholic identity and faith. Can you talk about two things? So the first is a little bit about how Catholic educators and Catholic schools do that in practice. And then the second thing I would like you to comment on is, is it in fact impossible for public schools to do this, to talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful in a non-religious sense, to give their students a commitment to service? Can you talk to me a little bit about how you think about that, about maybe what the public schools could learn from some of what happens in the Catholic schools? So that's a great question. And I appreciate that question because I've been writing a lot about this. So a lot of people are skeptical that more classical models of education, sort of education that really embraces this concept of paideia or building or deep formation of a person, people tend to be skeptical that you can do that in a public school because of I don't know, some kind of commitment to like liberal neutrality. So like we can't enforce any one vision of the good on our students. But actually, like, it's not true. It's, it's just simply not true that our public schools are like morality free zones. <laughs> um, you know, it turns out that they have rules and values. And then the most successful schools, they're very explicit about why they have the rules that they have in the sense that they explicitly connect the rules to sort of connect the rules and the values or the character traits that they're trying to instill in their students. They connect it to their success in the school, right? Their academic success, but also their success as citizens in the school, in the broader community that is the school. And I mean, there's really no way to talk about any kind of institution without embracing values. So this idea that we're going to have any kind of strict neutrality is not workable in practice. And I think that it's really important for public schools to adopt this kind of richer language of the transcendentals for the very simple reason that they are aligned to actual human nature I think that one of the benefits of the Catholic schools is that at least when it's done well, there's like a model for talking about it where you can talk about truth as the good of the intellect, right? So what you're trying to do when you're thinking and reasoning is to get at truth. Like that's the measure. That's the good condition. That's what you want. And that the good, right, is what you actually desire and want in your life, what you find fulfilling. And the beautiful is just that, which is delightful to the senses, you know, delightful in itself. And the truth is 
that we are drawn to what is true and good and beautiful, but we need a good education. We need a proper cultivation of these kinds of natural desires so that they can be directed towards these more kind of self-transcendent horizons. And they have to be directed in a way that reflects an understanding of some kind of like ordering role that they play in a human life. And that really is like, I mean, that's the job of education, right? And I think we really shouldn't shy away from this thicker language. It actually is very appealing to young people. And it's not surprising that it's appealing. And what's appealing is also motivating. I think in the Catholic context, you know, you're also able to connect the true and the good and the beautiful as different names for the divine essence. And so there's a kind of ultimate horizon for this. But you don't need to have that in the public school context. You can just talk about things like, what does it mean for a person to devote themselves to the truth? Like, in spite of hope of good consequences or bad consequences. And you can look to lots of exemplars of people who have been willing to fight for truth and justice and all these things. But we can't give children these exemplars for them to imitate and to like form their imagination unless we're willing to come out and say these people were working for things like truth and justice which have to adopt that richer language. Yeah, this is a really, thank you for that. Very astute observations. I would add to what you said, one of my own observations, which is that you can do this in the public schools. You can talk about such things. You can certainly, no form of education is value-free. But I've noticed in some cases that Catholic schools some Catholic schools, I appreciate that you said when this is done well in Catholic schools, because, you know, just a trend in the past decade of some Catholic schools, perhaps with declining enrollment, looking to become more like their public counterparts in terms of the curriculum they deliver or whatever, in sort of sucking the Catholicism out of it. And one of my observations was always, well, this is what distinguishes you. So people are choosing you, whether they are Catholic or not, in large part because of the character formation that you offer to students and families. So something we want to see Catholic schools and indeed any faith-based school retain is that distinctive character. Now, we want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to ask you about the Southern fiction writer Flannery O'Connor, who was really among the most important Catholic novelists of the 20th century. Can you tell us a little bit about her, about her life, and why her works, in your opinion, serve as a basis for learning through literature, for maybe for our high school students? Yeah, so I love Flannery O'Connor especially since I've moved down south. Um, Flannery has been my constant companion. Flannery, as you mentioned, she was a Catholic novelist. So she wrote two novels and she died. She died really young. So she died in 1964 at the age of 39. She died of lupus, which is really sad because she was nearly finished with her third novel. And in fact, they may publish her third novel in the next decade, we'll see their disputes with the family. But she managed in her very short career to write two novels. She also wrote 32 short stories. So the bulk of her work is actually short stories. And she is just widely acclaimed, you know, as one of the best writers of her generation. So she's not someone that is simply beloved by Catholics. But she did write with a distinctively Catholic and, I would argue, a distinctively Thomist vision. So we know that she read St. Thomas Aquinas every day. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of like her theological habit. And anyway, so she's a masterful writer. Her writing is very powerful, but it's not simply because she was a master of the craft of writing, though she was, but it's really because of the vision that informs her writing or stands behind it. And that vision is a vision that speaks to the reality of human fallenness or human sinfulness, and therefore the need for God's grace and redemption. And basically all of her stories are tracing the way that God's grace works in our lives. So grace is sort of the engine driving the drama of her fiction. And she is interested in the ways that God's grace can work changes in us. So she was often described as a hillbilly nihilist because, (laughs) of course, she's from rural Georgia and she sounds like a hillbilly. If you actually like watch interviews with her on YouTube, like she's barely understandable. The accent is so thick. But she protested and she said, no, she was a hillbilly Tillman. And she said, no, I write happy stories that center mm-hmm. on the work of grace in us, thick with the promise of God's mercy and redemption. And I think this is really incredible to people because her fiction is actually sort of grotesque in the literary sense, grotesque or gothic. It's like very dark and violent and all of the comedy that's in it. I mean, actually, her stories are very funny. But it's a very kind of dark comedy, not happy-go-lucky comedy. (laughs) And so I think what you tend to see in critics, and I would also say that Flannery O'Connor is really misunderstood, I think, as an author. And that's because people sort of focus on the violence and the freakish quality of her stories, but they miss her point, right? They miss the fact that she's talking about grace and redemption and that she sees, and I think this is one of her deep insights, she sees the movement of grace manifest itself as violence to one who is in the grip of sin. And, and violence in the sense that if your spiritual orientation is towards sin, then it takes a kind of violent movement of the soul to orient you towards what is really good. And that is how God's grace is playing out in the lives of her characters. And so, and it's true, like her characters, they are gored by bulls and they are murdered and they are, I mean, like bad things happen to them. And so some people are really like, oh, you know, she's too hard on her characters. Like, for example, Marilyn Robinson, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning Christian novelist, very famous. Like she's always kind of digging into Flannery O'Connor for being too violent, but The truth is, she doesn't really see what Flannery O'Connor is doing, right? And Flannery O'Connor is really talking about the reality of sin and the stakes there and the fact that God's grace really doesn't work like a nice, comforting electric blanket. (laughs) Like, it doesn't necessarily make us feel good. It can be really shocking, And that shock is necessary to get us to see what is kind of like right in front of us. It takes a kind of shock of the system or shock of the soul to get us to see what is really in front of us or really get reality. Well, and some would say that she saw more than what was just in front of us or in front of her, but that she was actually pretty far-sighted in thinking about some of the more troubling elements of this life that we are living now, the society that we're in. Can you comment a little bit about those things that maybe she saw that others didn't at the time? Well, I mean, I think 
every deep thinker or really great artist is a kind of prophet and the sense that they have this kind of foresight so they can see in the present, like in a way, the future, but only in the sense that they can trace out what's likely to come given the way things are. And I think she was kind of prophetic in a lot of ways. And I guess I would say, I mean, just to focus on one, Flannery was very opposed to a kind of prevailing sentimentality that she saw around her, where the idea is kind of general universal benevolence is the best moral posture. And that involves like a kind of false mercy, really, where all we want to do is like make people feel good and alleviate their suffering. And we won't talk about sin and we won't talk about the need for redemption, but we will talk about personal safety and comfort and feeling good and all of this stuff. And I think she thinks this kind of sentimentalism is extremely shallow and spiritually devastating, but that it also kind of leads to murder. So, you know, she talks about how the tender mercies of the wicked lead to all kinds of cruelty. And in a way, I think you can trace a line there between this kind of sentimentality and the legal embrace of false mercies, you know, like euthanasia, for example, or assisted suicide, or things like this, where you're killing people in the name of mercy, rather than helping them to live an authentic human life, in which it is the case that you don't have technical control over everything, and that you will suffer, and that your suffering isn't meaningless. So I think that she sees this sort of thing. I also think that she sees our need to escape from reality and our flight into fantasy. And I mean, for her, it takes the form of self-deception, but you can also see it in all the various ways that we distract ourselves from reality now with technology. And this is a huge problem for our schools because, of course, all of our young people now live in a kind of virtual reality for a lot of their days. And a lot of their friendships are mediated almost completely by technology. And this temptation to sort of retreat from the real world and escape into a kind of virtual world, I think that she sees that as a bad impulse that needs to be fought. And that is related to her Christian realism which she explicitly relates to Thomas Aquinas. She says, look, you know, she, I mean, she takes from St. Thomas this idea that what it means to live well is to know and to love reality, to seek and conform oneself to what is true so that you can have a kind of loving communion with the good and to take your delight in what is beautiful. But in order to do that, you really have to be connected to reality and, of course, have an understanding of God as the ultimate reality. And so this kind of retreat into fantasy or a sort of virtual world, I think she would connect that again with a kind of inability to live the truth, right? To live with reality, which is often quite painful. And again, if you look at all of her stories, they're all stories of grace working to kind of pierce this veil of perception and to force characters to deal with the world 
to confront reality, and most especially the unpleasant reality of the effects of sin in their own souls. Like the way that grace operates in a lot of her fiction is to force people to see themselves as they really are and also to see other people as they really are. And that, she thinks, is actually a very difficult spiritual task. Well, thank you for that. We have actually come to the end of our time together, but because we've been talking about her, we're wondering if you would close us out with a quote or a passage from Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, so I picked a quote that really kind of speaks to her Catholicity, because I really think the key to understanding Miss O'Connor is to realize the Catholic vision behind her fiction. So this is a little quote that I take from Mystery and Manners. So this is Flannery. The truth is, my stories have been watered and fed by dogma. I'm a Catholic, and at some point in my life, I realized that not only was I a Catholic, but that this was all I was. That I was a Catholic, not like somebody else would be a Baptist or a Methodist, but like someone else would be an atheist. So if my stories are complete, it is because I see everything as beginning with original sin taking in the redemption and reckoning on a final judgment. Professor Jennifer Freight, thank you so much for joining us, especially during this National Catholic Schools Week. It's just been a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. course, Gerard, we have got to close it out with our tweet of the week. And here is a shout out to a former colleague, a former host of this show. So Bob Bowden has stepped down as executive director of Choice Media TV and his last hashtag story of the day, the Instagram story on the day, his message was thank you and I'll see you soon. So certainly very best of luck to our friend Bob in his next endeavors. And thank you to him for his service and all that he has done for the school choice movement. And Gerard, next week, we've got somebody, another person that has done, man, worlds for this movement that you and I are both such fans of and we both find so important. We are going to be speaking with Virginia Walden Ford of Miss Virginia fame. You know her work. Many of our listeners will know her work, but boy, has she been a huge influence in opening up more educational opportunity for kids in this country and can't wait for that conversation. Gerard, I have to say, you know that I will not be able to be here for that conversation, which I'm very disappointed about because I'm going to be taking a little hiatus, a short vacation with my family. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of our friends, Darrell Bradford. So just please don't misbehave while I'm gone. Like, you know, it's Virginia Walden. Oh, no. I need you to, I need you oh, to no. keep it cool. I've got to take every opportunity <laughs> I have to misbehave when you're gone. I know, I know. Well, it's okay. I'm going to talk to Kimberly about that. Until then, though, Gerard, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. You have a wonderful one and can't wait to listen and can't wait to be back with you again soon. Safe travels. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.